electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Two big stories today on our podcast. The rise of the retail investor, GameStop's meteoric rise from the ashes, a Reddit forum, a coordinated squeeze, and $5 billion losses on Wall Street. If you think this is manipulation, what do you think Wall Street's doing every day to us, the retail investors? Is GameStop just a show of retail investors' frustration with Wall Street? Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev on his platform's role in keeping markets accessible. I think I really came to value how powerful the American financial system is and has been as a wealth creation tool. And that really motivated our mission, which is to give everyone access to the financial system. And Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on the U.S. economic recovery. We need to get this economy, which is about 90 some percent back to the way it is, because if the U.S. economy doesn't grow, the rest of the world's in trouble. And how the business community can come together on the environment. It's about defining stakeholder capitalism. It's defining how capitalism actually can measure itself and hold itself as accountable to deliver on the sustainable development goals. It's Wednesday, January 27th, 2021. Our supersized Squawk Pod. It's a lot today, but there's a lot going on. It all begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And if you take a look at the U.S. First up today, the stock story trending on Wall Street, Twitter, Reddit, pretty much everywhere. GameStop, the video game retailer stock, has rallied over 680 percent this month. And in the last couple of days, the stock's volatility has pretty much everyone talking. So what's going on? First of all, GameStop is, for the average mall-going consumer, a dying brand, a relic of simpler times when we used to have to physically go to the store and wait in line for the newest Call of Duty or for the latest Harry Potter book. So it's no surprise that GameStop has been a target for Wall Street short sellers. Its demise has been a foregone conclusion. So shorting GameStop, that is betting that GameStop would continue to depreciate, could have been a good bet, except short selling is risky. And your losses, if you lose that bet, are basically limitless, since there's no cap on how valuable the company you've bet against could become. Sell, sell, sell! Even riskier, if a stock you've shorted starts going up, you can essentially cut your losses. Without getting too in the weeds with market mechanics here, when a lot of short sellers decide to cut their losses on a shorted stock that's now suddenly going up, it triggers what's called a short squeeze. Demand goes up, supply goes down, price goes up, more short sellers try to cut their losses. Bye, bye, bye! It's a vicious cycle, and one that can result in massive losses for those short sellers and giant profits for those who've invested in the stock on the way up. Which is why when a popular Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets figured out that GameStop was the most shorted stock on the U.S. markets, it wasn't hard to convince Reddit users in the forum to buy up enough stock in GameStop to trigger that short squeeze, making retail investors a bundle and sticking it to the Wall Street big guys in the process. This was all encouraged in many ways by high-profile investors with a hefty social media presence. Chamath Palihapitiya tweeted that he'd bet on the stock increasing himself. Cameron Winklevoss of the Winklevi suggested he might go long on the stock. And Elon Musk only tweeted that he was aware of the situation, just aware of the situation, and GameStop took off again in after-hours trading. And to Wall Street Bet's credit, the plan worked. Amid GameStop's rally, short sellers on Wall Street have accumulated over $5 billion in losses year-to-date. And that includes $900 million lost on Monday and $1.6 billion lost on Friday. As you're about to hear, hedge fund Melvin Capital took an enormous loss on the bet, so much so that rumors of bankruptcy were swirling on that Wall Street Bet subreddit. But the founder of Melvin told our own Andrew Ross Sorkin the rumors aren't true. Here's Andrew now. Some breaking news this morning on this GameStop story. Uh, We've been reporting all morning, uh, having talked to uh, Gabe Plotkin, who runs Melvin Capital. Uh, Gabe Plotkin saying that Melvin Capital has been out, closed out its position uh, in the stock. Of course, that company was uh, firm, I should say, was short. Um, 
looks like has lost a ton of money, but uh, was short that company up through uh, before the end of the close yesterday. But uh, Gabe saying that uh, they got out yesterday afternoon. Um, of course, the question is, uh, what happens now to GameStop, uh, GameStop shares? Um, Melvin Capital had to take in an additional close to $3 billion in new capital. Uh, Citadel coming to the rescue along with Point72. This is a, a remarkable saga uh, with GameStop. So many of these investors no, really, no longer really investing uh, on the fundamentals of what's happening at GameStop, but more uh, just continue to try to push up the stock. And we've seen uh, so many folks like Elon Musk uh, go to, take to Twitter about it. Chamath Palihapitiya fanning the flames. So there's a lot of uh, fan, uh, fan fl flame fanning uh, taking place right now. And uh, big questions about uh, regulators, where they are, what they should be doing. Um, and, a, and a lot of cri criticism and critique online uh, saying that if you think this is manipulation, what do you think Wall Street's doing every day to us, the retail investors? So there's a, a, a sort of a pop psychology um, dynamic at play. And uh, I think we're all, we're all learning and trying to understand uh, what it means, but also what it means in the future uh, for the ability of, of retail investors to get together on places like Reddit and other places, uh, form an army of sorts and try to push up uh, the stocks in, in, in certain cases like this. So uh, I'm at a loss for words, Joe. I really am. Where are the regulators? Um, and is this just the beginning? Um, a lot to this, say in is this, this a one-off situation? We all, do. we all do have a lot to say in this, but you obviously have a lot to say in this. That's, that's uh, interesting. But it, obviously, they're playing with the calls, uh, and, the, and you're, you're seeing calls that are $100 out of the money uh, and have no value that are going for $19. And things that you've got, you know, market caps going from $2 billion to $25 billion. Obviously, everything you're saying, we, we understand. This is, uh, this is a game. Obviously, and these guys, when I put $5 on a NCAA game that I don't care that much about, that's the same as Chamath putting a couple of hundred grand on some calls, or Elon, or any of the guys you're talking about. This, I, I think it's kind of irresponsible. They're kind of laughing about it, laughing all the way to the bank, but uh, you know, there are market makers that have to take, how'd you like to be short some of these calls? Can you imagine being short some of these calls, especially if you're not covered? Yeah. I mean, you can, lose, you can lose 10 times your money, unlike a regular investment where you only lose, you know, 100%. I mean, this, this, I, you know, this, makes, bit, this makes Bitcoin look like T-bills. If you think there's speculation in yeah. crypto, uh, when, you, when you look at something like that, and, th and now they're looking for the next mark, right? They'll find another GameStop once they're done with GameStop. But in the meantime, there's going to well, be blood all over. I understand why... I understand why Elon Musk is doing it. He hates the shorts. They've, you know, he right. thinks the shorts but have been out. It's a game. He's playing company. a game too. I don't he's understand. He's playing the game too. I don't understand why Chamath is doing this. I don't understand why the, the Winklevoss guy is doing this. I, I mean, this is, I, it, it's nothing they to have laugh too much about money. what you said. They got too much money. It, it, I, and <laughs> if you if you think people look unkindly at the wealthy at this point, like wait till you see. What happens with with the retail investor who gets sucked into this and, and gets caught in the trap with people who can't afford to lose the money right. like these guys are doing? But I'll, I'll tell you the thing: there there really is a, a merry band of of retail investors out there, both on Reddit, but increasingly, and this is what's I think even more concerning. Uh, I spent a lot of time last night reporting this out, but also spending time on the uh, in some of these rooms. Uh, there are places people are going now into encrypted rooms, onto Telegram, onto Signal, uh, where they where they effectively are are planning their next uh, raid, where they're trying to look to say, okay, where can we do that? You know, who can we take down next? In this case, it was Melvin Capital that they were seeking to take down. That's why I think the news today that they're out um, may be potentially a turning point. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what turns this uh, stock uh, back into some kind of. Uh, normal situation. But I, I do wonder uh, what you do about it. And I do wonder uh, when Gary Gensler, uh, who's been nominated to be in the seat at the SEC, sits down in that seat for the first time and gets confirmed what he does about this and what you can do about it, uh, given uh, really just how fast technology is working and the ability of so many people to get together and effectively, let's be honest, let's call it what it is. It's manipulation. That's what's happening here. This is, this is some kind of... Um, some kind of grand manipulation that we don't normally uh, that we don't normally see, in part because people didn't ever get together like this, and for reasons that are different than than typical. So.
I, I remain baffled. Like if they were doing this the and news. conspiring to do it, it, you'd say this, this is a cartel. They're doing it in open on Twitter, you know, another great use of Twitter, let's say. Well, I, but that's what it is to some degree. It's an open cartel. You're, you're watching it play out in real time. But originally it was clearly a cartel. And the question is whether we're going to see more and more of this and, and, and what, you know, how, how the government reacts, how investors react, uh, how short sellers, how hedge funds and others react. Because, you know, a lot of the short positions, you, you can you can look through which companies have a lot of short positions. You can try to figure out who's on the other side. And if uh, if somebody decides they're, they're going for you. Maybe they are. We've seen I mean, short start, squeezes it, before, it, it, it just not like started, this. It might have started with a, a, you know, a, a scintilla of rationality in that GameStop, the demise was greatly exaggerated, and Microsoft Games, look, look at the gaming revenue with people staying at home. So you, know, you, you add that no one's ever going to you know, play a game again, and we've, we've talked about GameStop being a short two, three, four, five years ago. Gaming is back in a big way. Is, is GameStop right. the way to play? online gaming with subscriptions and, and everything else? I don't know. But initially, no. No. you know, it sort of had that, you know, well, gaming is big and during a pandemic. So it starts out with that. But now it's just now this is purely and it's dangerous. I think you're right, Andrew. It's dangerous. It's and it, and it doesn't it, you know, it doesn't make most people if they're not stock market aficionados, it certainly doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in what goes on. And I don't know what it says about overall Fed, uh, you know, priming the pumps and everything. There's a lot of money sloshing around. And these billionaires that are just playing around laughing while they're doing it, you know, they, they, they're closing in on trillionaires during the pandemic while everyone else is sort of, you know, in food lines. GameStop. And earlier this hour, I reported that uh, Melvin Capital now uh, telling us that it has closed out its position. It is the latest chapter in what has been a wild ride for this stock. Robert Frank joins us with another personality that's been involved in this. Investor Ryan Cohen buying shares at GameStop last August uh, was a risky bet. But given the stock's meteoric rise, the bet paid off handsomely. Robert. Good morning, Andrew. And again, great reporting by you this morning on GameStop. Now, we're just going to use the market close yesterday to measure all this because who knows where it's going to open today. But GameStop creating more than $2 billion in wealth for its biggest shareholders just over the past couple of weeks. As you mentioned, the big winner here, Ryan Cohen, the co-founder of Chewy, bought around 10% of the company last August. He added more to that position last month, bringing his total stake to 13%. So his investment of $76 million now worth $1.3 billion. Now he's also, if you just measure that by day, he's made more than $90 million a day or about $3 million an hour for the past two weeks. Now, his other stock investments also doing well. He plowed a lot of cash from selling Chewy into Apple stock. Uh, that has more than tripled. So he's added more than a billion just on the Apple bet. Now, the other big winner here, many people haven't seen this or read about it, is Donald Foss. Now, he is the 76-year-old founder and former CEO of Credit Acceptance Corp. They are the subprime auto lender Foss bought around 5% of the company last February for around $12 million. That $12 million stake now worth about a half a billion dollars. And this is interesting. The hedge fund uh, manager, Michael Burry, he's that contrarian investor made famous by the big short. Burry owns about, uh, through his company, owns about $250 million in shares right now. He would have made even more. But Burry actually sold off about 38% of his stake last year, so I'm sure he's sorry he did that now. You know, GameStop CEO George Sherman, his stake is now worth about $350 million. Now, this is the big question, one that uh, Becky and Joe were also mentioning earlier. So far, none of these guys have sold, or at least we haven't seen filings yet. Uh, but if you get any of these shareholders, whether it's Foss, Cohen, Sherman, any of these guys selling a lot of stock now while the retail investor will get hurt. That's going to cause a whole other debate, guys. Robert, you think the, you think the company should try to raise some money right now? That's what I'd be doing. I almost think it's negligence not to. But then people are going to say they're taking advantage well, of this crazy moment. Well, I don't think anyone would criticize the company for trying to raise money. The question is, can they do it quick enough with the stock where it is? Like, could you do a secondary at anywhere close to these valuations? What is the right valuation? Could you borrow money? I mean, would a bank or even an acquisition target 
what would they take as currency? What is the value of this company? So yes, you would think with this elevated levels, there could be some positive business impact, but I just don't know how anyone, whether it's a lender, a target, or a partner, could value the stock as a currency. So I, I think we'll see where it settles down. Maybe they could do something to help the actual business, but at this point, it's, it's just hard to value. Nobody, there'd be no reason to want to increase the flow to fewer the company. That, that defeats the whole purpose of the short squeeze. You'll, that, you'll, the things will end lickety-split right. if they do that, you know? Uh, right, I, you I get some cash. Right. I don't know if the company's enjoying what's happening either. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm enjoying what's going on on Twitter, Sor uh, Sorkin and Becky. It's like, wow, man. Uh, I don't know. Th thank you, uh, Robert, uh, Robert Frank. Keep it coming. It's, it's interesting. They're mad because they, they, they say, we're finally making some money from, from investing. And you guys are mad. Investing. This is, this is investing. Okay. Coming up, the, uh, the GameStop short squeeze and the retail investor, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood. Andrew's interview. Uh, hey, guys. And, and Andrew, the, the, the common theme I'm seeing is that hedge funds have been taking it to the small guy for years and years yep. and years. And it doesn't matter how we do it. GameStop is just the vehicle to get some of ours right. from these guys. No, and this, is, this is payback. Play, payback. And, and, and isn't Robinhood the perfect name for, the, for the, uh, taking from the rich right. and giving to the... But there's people writing in saying that literally thousands of people's lives have been changed by what's happened with GME. It's, uh, and I think that's extracting ill-gotten gains from the fat cats. And, but, but, you know, the point is well right. taken. That this, this is a bad commentary on what people think. Of, and we've seen recent polls about what people think of Wall Street. The sort of larger issue, which is that there's yeah. a huge part of the public that doesn't think that the system is fair, and you're and seeing them take advantage of it right now. There are people who've made an enormous amount of money right. uh, on, over the past couple of days. Um, and it's, but, since and it's a zero-sum game... Yeah, they think but, it's coming from but, some of the hedge fund guys and some of the some of the billionaires. Right. Have you gotten any OK Boomer tweets or that's just me? Yes, get, I'm getting the OK Boomer. You're a boomer. But. OK Boomers, next on Squawk Pod, as Joe said, Andrew's wide-ranging interview with Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev, his thoughts on this GameStop saga, and so much more. Of course we need education, but I think this idea that all retail investors are unsophisticated. They shouldn't be managing their money and they should leave that to the experts or institutions is a notion that we just have to move past. And later, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on sustainability and making business choices that impact communities in a good way. We've made commitments to 40 funds for about $150 million, all granular funds which invest in black, Hispanic, women-owned businesses in 21 communities around the country. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Retail investor participation in the market is reaching new heights and euphoria, obviously, in some cases. This morning, Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev is out with a CNBC.com op-ed, and it's titled, Becoming an Investor is the New American Dream, just like homeownership was before. Andrew Ross Sorkin spoke with Tenev about his upbringing, GameStop and its rocket ship ride, and the younger generation of investors, and whether he thinks they have the wherewithal and knowledge to properly invest. Here's Andrew. Vlad, why don't we start here? You have a new op-ed out, and you speak about your own upbringing, and in particular being born in Bulgaria, and this idea that you only had two options to manage your own money, either saving it in a bank or stashing it under your mattress, and how that affected you. Yeah, um, well, it's a, it's, it's a great question. I was uh, a little bit young when I moved over, but... Um, I did have an opportunity to see the impact on um, on you know my my grandparents and relatives who were back in Bulgaria in the 90s, and uh, you know after 
after the um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and communism, uh, there was a period of economic stability leading up to hyperinflation uh, in the mid '90s. So, um, you know, I saw my my relatives' pensions get decimated, and um, you know, part of what is so powerful about the financial system is um, had people been given the ability to invest um, invest in a wide variety of assets, then uh, there there are options that are reasonable. Um, and so I, I really, um, I think I really came to value uh, how powerful the American financial system is and has been as a wealth creation tool. And that really motivated um, our mission, which is to, to give everyone access to the financial system and make it available to as many people as possible. And we've talked a lot about uh, your efforts to democratize uh, investing uh for an entire generation, really for the first time. But, but I want to ask you in particular about this uh, quote in the op-ed. You say, those who question the capability of retail investors do not have the interests of everyday Americans at heart. You write it's wrong. It's wrong to view the arrival of increasing numbers of retail investors in the market with dismay. There is a considerable amount of dismay uh, at this moment within the marketplace, if you will, in part about this younger generation of investors and whether they have uh, the wherewithal and the knowledge to properly be investing. What do you say to that? Well, I would say two things. First of all, uh, of course, we believe in education and that people should be informed. And in fact, we've made lots of, of progress and very significant updates. Just last week, we announced uh, a revamped Robinhood Learn portal, which aims to take people from um, being first-time investors and teaching them basic concepts all the way through to more more advanced uh, concepts around investing. So obviously, I think education is going to be something that we're going to continue to invest in um, and, and tools to make sure we really enable first-time investors to become long-term investors. But the other thing I would mention is that, you know, I, I have an opportunity to talk to Robinhood customers and uh, one of the things I, I enjoy doing in, is sitting in on uh, on customer research, um, which is a big part of our product development. And there's there's a lot of times where we hear this feedback that Robinhood is uh, one of the first products and companies that treats people like they're adults and meets them where they are. So many times you you hear, and we've heard our customers saying that. Um, you know, other financial institutions or advisors are trying to sell me products, trying to tell me that I shouldn't be investing my own money and that I should leave that to the experts. And Robinhood is the first company that's actually treating me like an adult and giving me and meeting me where I'm at in my in my investing journey and giving me the tools to empower myself uh, to manage my finances. So we, we hear that a lot. And um I think that that resonates with us and the mission very strongly. Uh, of course, we need education, but I think this idea that all retail investors are unsophisticated, they shouldn't be managing their money, and they should leave that to the experts or institutions is um, is a notion that we just have to move past. Well, let me just ask you, though, because it's in the news, and, and I think we're all trying to make sense of it. GameStop, uh, a, a stock which has just been on a... Uh, I wouldn't say even a roller coaster, on a rocket ship, really, uh, as part of a short squeeze. It's actually a very sophisticated play in some respects, but there are really no fundamentals around it. And it's unclear, I think, as somebody who cares about those out there that are investing in this, that they fully understand what they're investing in. Do you think they do? Well, I, without commenting on, on individual stocks, um, and, and whether people should or not be investing in them. What I'll say is that, um, you know, like many others in the industry, um, we have processes that respond to um, increases in volatility in certain names uh, by, by doing things like raising the margin requirements. Um, so, so, you know, we, we've done that uh, in lots of cases. And, um, you know, we, we, we're, we always remain focused on making sure the system is reliable, that we're investing in stability, making sure we're up for customers when they need us the most, and 
and that we're investing in customer support. So those remain our two uh, priorities. Um, and other than that, you know, uh, as, as you've seen with this market, there's there's things happening, different things happening uh, every week. And um, I think we we have to avoid, you know, um, running our business as if we're responding to, you know, what, what's in the news on a weekly basis and focus on the inputs of making sure that we're a reliable service, that we're investing in stability and that we're uh, investing in support and educating our customers and providing them the tools that they need to make informed trading decisions. But just so the public understands, in the case of something like a GameStop, are you are you raising margin requirements? Do you look at a situation specifically like that and say, you know what, this is this is complicated, and not only is it complicated, we're not sure whether our own customers fully understand the risks involved here. Well, I would say, like like other brokerages do, we monitor volatility and we take steps as appropriate, um, like raising the. The margin requirements. Um, I do think it's wrong to assume, though, that most of our activity is characterized by trading of, of volatile stocks. Um, as I've said before, most of our customers are, um, you know, what's called buy and hold. They deposit and buy uh, over the long term. You have seen overall growth in the sector, which means all types of, of customers, from the more active investors as well as the most passive, are have been growing. Um, through 2020, um, and you know, you're, obviously the passive ones don't get as much attention uh, out in the public. Um, mm. But I, I do think if you look at the products we're rolling out, uh, fractional shares, drip, uh, recurring through 2020, these are all intended to help first-time investors and also um, help them on their journey of becoming long-term investors. Right. So look, you know, historically, empirically, the market is. Highly valued. I, I think it's impossible to say otherwise, based on all sorts of metrics. Do you think that we're in a bubble? Do you look at this as a mania? Um, it's hard to predict uh, to predict the future. I think, as I've said before, as a great person said, it's it's um, you can only connect the dots going backwards. Um, and there will be times where markets are up. There will be times where markets are down. And um, in the past, when we have seen, for example, in March of 2020, uh, sharp market corrections or crashes, um, with our younger customer base, they've tended to view those as buying opportunities and opportunities to start investing uh, at a discount and at lower multiples. Um, so we just have to make sure we operate a resilient service that uh, serves customers in a variety of market conditions. And, and that's what right. we aspire to do by investing in things like customer support and the service reliability and our educational content. You know, when, when you talk about the sophistication of retail investors, I often, I even find myself getting criticized occasionally on Twitter when I say, you know, do in, retail investors really understand, for example, what a SPAC is or how, how a SPAC works or the various incentives behind uh, SPACs, given that virtually every SPAC that's being brought to market these days is going up in value. Do you think people understand the various incentives and, and, and arguably misalignments that exist in those types of structures? I think it's, it's, it's a retail investors as a category is uh, a very broad category. It obviously encompasses uh, a wide range of of different people of various uh, sort of strategies and, and sophistications. And without a doubt, we're seeing investing become more relevant for everyday people. And we're seeing retail investors become uh, a larger and more significant force uh, in the markets. Um, so, so that's, uh, and, and we think categorically that's a good thing. The US stock market right. has been one of the biggest engines of wealth creation in history. And, you know, we're facing real problems in society with wealth inequality. A big part of that has been that the wealthy and institutions have had access to the stock market and others have not. So I think um, most people would agree that having uh, people investing uh, earlier and uh, investing frequently and making it habitual is, is, is a positive thing. And that's something that we'd like to encourage. Vlad, I'll tell you the, the, the thing that concerns me. The, the thing that concerns me is there will be a day when the market will go down and then there'll be finger pointing. 
And the question is, are the investors going to stand up and say, we were so smart, we knew everything, and we just made a terrible mistake? That's not usually what happens. In truth, what happens is they say that either the big bad Wall Street or the big, you, the big bad somebody um, did something to me. This was a predatory act. And when you look at SPACs, for example, or so many of the companies that are going public, there's a reason they're selling into this market and not remaining private. You either have to believe that some of the smartest private investors in the world have been dumb and have been terribly undervaluing their own companies, or the retail investors are smarter than them. Who do you think is smarter? Throughout history, there's there's been all, always, regardless of the market conditions, people saying that markets are overvalued. People people are saying markets are undervalued, um, and that's sort of the the ebb and flow of things. And things uh, also have changed very rapidly uh, throughout 2020. I mean, who would have thought um, in March of 2020 that we we would see a V-shaped recovery like ended up happening? I mean, some people certainly were um, were hypothesizing that at the time, but there were others who were saying that's ridiculous and that's wishful thinking. Um, and I think that continues to, to this day. There's people with lots of opinions out there. And that's why we have to focus on the inputs of the business that we can control, including uh, the, the reliability of the service, um, the customer support, and making sure that we're, we're improving that. And staying close to our customers and making sure that we help them on their journey uh, and offer them more and more products that help them right. on their journey, ranging from you know our spending and savings products all the way through to, uh, to the variety of investing products that we have. We're seeing a new round of $600 stimulus checks go out, and I'm wondering whether you're seeing those getting deposited into Robinhood accounts right now. Um, I, I think broadly, um, it, it's it's a little bit hard to say because, you know, Robinhood, um, you know, uh, we, we do have a, a cash management offering, but it's hard for us to, to sort of definitively say what people are doing with their stimulus checks. Um, what we've seen on a macro level certainly is a movement away from spending uh, to, to more investing behaviors. Uh, and I think that's been correlated with the shutdowns. There's just simply less things for customers to spend money on. Um, and uh, that, that's been going towards things like investing and saving uh, as well. Um, and I think largely uh, that that is a positive trend. I don't know if it'll continue, but uh, the trend away from consumption toward more investing, um, I think, is, is an interesting and positive trend for, for consumers. When you sit with your team and think about a post-vaccine world, where hopefully we're all vaccinated and we can go back uh, to the office and go see friends and do all the things we used to do, do you think of a market with low, much lower volume? I think, uh, again, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Hopefully we get there and we get past this, this crisis, um, which has been affecting so many people. Um, and I, I think that... Um, uh, I think what what is likely to happen is some of the areas where you have seen um, sort of a decrease of spending, um, probably, you know, as, as we reopen and people go out um, into the world, um, they'll be interested in, in spending again, they'll be able to spend again. Um, so uh, the ramifications of that typically have been uh, positive for economies in the past, but we we don't know how it's going to happen in this case, and we just have to we have to be ready to serve customers across a variety of their needs. As you know so very well, uh, there have been reports that you're considering going public uh, this year and um, potentially thinking about uh, getting shares or selling shares to your own clients and customers on the Robinhood platform. I don't know if you're going to comment on the IPO itself, but it was very interesting earlier this year to watch what Airbnb did uh, in terms of how it allocated shares uh, to uh, some of the folks uh, who've been customers and are on their platform and, and for, for so many years. Did you, did you look at that at all in terms of how, how you might think about doing something like this in the future? Well, um, I, I, we try to stay abreast of what, um, what other companies have done, especially as it pertains to... Um, to, to the capital markets, just uh, because um, we're we're interested in that stuff, um, and 
you know, we, we always learn, uh, we're on a, we're still, uh, we're still early in the Robin Hood journey. So, um, I can't comment on, um, what, what that means for a potential, uh, Robin Hood, uh, IPO in the future. Um, that's probably not something I can, I can really talk too much about. Um, but what I can say is, Robinhood as a business, especially in 2020, um, we see a huge opportunity in front of us and uh, we're focused on the inputs and making sure we're there to serve customers when they need us. Okay. Vlad, it's great to see you. We appreciate uh, you joining us today. Thanks again. Thank you for having me as always. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. More than six months have passed since American cities were confronted with the biggest wave of civil unrest in decades following the Minneapolis police killing of an unarmed black man, George Floyd. People were marching, demanding change and a reckoning with racism in this country. On Squawk Box, we asked many business leaders how corporate America would and should respond. The demonstrations were mirroring difficult conversations in boardrooms, or let's face it, Zoom rooms, in our biggest companies. Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan was an early voice for not just recognizing the challenge of systemic racism, but making CEO-level decisions and using the levers of capitalism to do something about it. We thought instead of just talking, it's time to put up the money, and we are doubling down on our efforts. In June, Bank of America announced a $1 billion commitment over the next four years to help local communities address economic and racial inequality, especially in communities hardest hit by the global coronavirus pandemic. Key funding would support minority-owned small businesses, investment for affordable housing, and inside the bank, recruitment and retention of staff from low to moderate income communities. And Moynihan was thinking long-term. We should not let it quiet down as a business community. We have to redouble our efforts to make the progress so it doesn't occur, not quite down. Bank of America's Brian Moynihan joined us again this week and again about addressing problems, really complex issues like climate change, inequality, through capitalism. Here's Becky Quick kicking it off. This January, we are not heading to the mountains of Switzerland to cover the World Economic Forum in Davos, but a virtual meeting, the Davos agenda is still happening. And today, the forum's International Business Council announced an agreement among 60-plus companies to follow a global set of ESG metrics. Joining us right now is the chair of Davos's International Business Council, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. And, and Brian, it's great to see you. Um, this is something I think we started talking about last year with you at Davos. And it's this idea behind ESG, environmental, social and governance. It's a pretty amorphous thing. It's hard to pinpoint. Um, I guess, how did you get 60 companies to sign off and say, this is what we think ESG is and stands for? And tell us what those standards mean. Oh, thank you, Becky, and good morning. Let's go back, and you're right. We talked about it last year when we were at the wonderful base of the mountains, and we've talked about it last September. I was on with you, and we talked about the announcement of the paper. But what, what is it about? It's about defining stakeholder capitalism. It's defining how capitalism actually can measure itself and hold itself as accountable to deliver on the sustainable development goals. It's about you know, the BRT statement, stakeholder capitalism, you have to have some metrics to measure. And so we tasked a group, the big four accounting firms and the teams at the WEF and other companies to come up with a set of metrics. And they've come up with 21 metrics and 24 supplemental metrics. That was announced last September. And in the 60 to 90 days since then, 60, now 62 companies this morning have signed on to disclose these metrics. They include environmental matters. They include uh, social matters and diversity and things like that, board governance, uh, those are all important things. And so this is a way that across industries you can measure the success of companies in, 
and continuing to do what society needs from us. This is something that is important because if it's not done, he thinks governments will mandate it for them. Um, you share that concern that if businesses don't step up and do this, they'll be dictated about what happens along these lines? That's, that's not the concern. The, the question is you can't do this without capitalism. So you hear lots of people talk about how do we define capitalism, how's, how do we change it, you know, does it, does it do what we need to do? But the reality is, is that if you think about the sustainable development goals, they take $6 trillion a year of investment. And if you take you know, all the charity work, it's a trillion dollars a year. It's spectacular, but it's a trillion dollars a year. You take what the governments could do and think about the deficits they're running, especially after coronavirus. They don't have that much money to put to work. But then you think about it and take all these companies and all the money they spend on their supply chains and the money they spend on their teammates and the money they spend on, on uh, advertising and, and understanding and think about what they bring to the table. They bring trillions of dollars of investment. They tr bring tremendous ingenuity. If they commit to carbon neutrality, which many of the companies have, and then disclose that, they bring tremendous demand for clean energy and the energy transition. And that's what capitalism can drive this. So, yes, I, I, don't, I believe if without capitalism, this isn't going to happen. Without the companies driving, this isn't going to happen. And so this is why the companies are putting on the table, this is how to measure it. And now you can tell if we're making progress. The companies that you mentioned are not just Bank of America, but well-known names like Dow, Unilever, Sony, PayPal. These are companies we all know. How much money are we talking at this point? How much, I mean, if you're really talking about capitalism and dollars moving things, how big of a commitment is it between these 60 companies? Well, they have you know, four trillion plus of market cap, you know, several millions of employees. And so think about them saying we are going to run our companies consistent with delivering on the SDGs, delivering for our shareholders and delivering for society. It's not either or, it's both. And, and that is tremendous. So just in the case of our company, think about 53 billion, 55 billion dollars expenses as we align those to what society needs in terms of how we spend on energy, how we spend on supply chains and goods that come into our company and how we run our company from an operational basis, you know, solar panels and branches. All these companies make those moves, brings tremendous money to the task that otherwise wouldn't be available. And the metrics then hold us accountable for delivering. Hey, Brian, let's talk a little bit about other things that you've been doing, too. At Bank of America, you first told us about some investments that you were making. Um, again, this was a conversation that we had with you over six months ago. You talked about some of the diversity and inclusion investments that you were making. And I think this was back in June of last year. At that point, you said you were making a billion dollar four year commitment to advance racial equity and economic opportunity. How's that pledge going so far and what can you tell us about it? Well, Becky, thank you. So given what happened in the United States, given the, the combination of the healthcare crisis, which we've got to solve, and the uh, racial and social justice crisis. We had been building a program about opportunity before that. We doubled the size of it to a billion dollars and we started deploying. And so today we'll announce that we've made another step, another sort of update in that. So today we're going to announce that we've made commitments to 40 funds for about $150 million, all granular funds which invest in black, Hispanic, women-owned businesses in 21 communities around the country. These are private equity funds that do, you know, 300, 500 million dollar uh, deal sizes, investment sizes that help these entrepreneurs be successful. That is, it caps uh, the investments we made in the minority depository institutions. Today, we're also announcing that we've completed two more of those, bringing us a total of 12. That also caps the 25 commitments we made to universities and HBCUs and community colleges around reskilling and career pathing and education. It also caps the healthcare commitments we made of 20 million uh, masks and stuff given away to community centers to help keep populations as safe as we can. And so the billion dollar program is out there rolling and today it's a big day because these 40 funds will provide tremendous capital downstream. Some of these are startups, some of these are more have been around a while, but this is a major lift in capital for them to provide capital to uh, black and Hispanic owned businesses and women owned businesses. What have you seen just in terms of what you've already deployed? Can you give us a, an example or two of, of what this means on, on a very small scale for someone? Sure. I, I'll give you the uh, example. Uh, I was on with Jim Cramer a few weeks back with a, a fellow from Southern Bank Corpus, an MDI, that we, we put an equity investment in. He just sent me the note the other day that he made an acquisition using that capital and growing his business to three communities, which I think the populations were three and 5,000 persons. The bank there needed to be bought by somebody, the local bank, so that it could be kept and run. 
And <clears throat> those communities were 70% LMI. That, that's what we're trying to do with the MDI investments is help those MDIs reach out further. So that's a very specific example. And Darren's done a great job, and he, he, he made a, a, another investment with it. And we are trying to provide capital to the places that we don't provide. We are the largest small business lender. It's not like we don't do small businesses all over the country. But sometimes there's places we don't reach as well. That's why we have a billion six with the CDFIs. That's why we have 100 million deposits with the MDIs. That's why we have 5% of the equity in 12 of them. And importantly, for growth capital, that's why we're committing to 40 funds today of $150 million. So instead of talking about what we can do, we're just trying to get the money out the door to help these institutions uh, deploy the capital. Yeah, I think on a, a very personalized basis, it, it, it makes people understand what that means. Brian, let's just talk a little bit about the pandemic, what we've seen over the course of this year and how the economy is faring up. It's been almost a year, just over a year since the first case of COVID was here in America. I know it was a very tumultuous year, but what can you tell us about what the economy looks like, at least from your seat right now? Well, let's think about that. Last year at this time, we were over in Davos and there was talk about this thing. We, we were getting briefed on for the first time, uh, but really next week on a, in last year's context. And yet it was not well known and it was completely unexpected. And then we went into March and in April and you had the shutdowns. And so the economy went down dramatically, then started rising back up. And as we look towards 2021, Candace Browning Platt and her experts at Bank of American Securities, which is a top research firm in the world, have the U.S. growing at nearly 5% GDP. And so we have an economy about the size it was in 2000. 18 in the second quarter, projected to grow at 5%. And the key to all that is just to continue to solve the health care crisis. And no matter what people say, no matter what they're thinking about, if we get the vaccine out, if we continue to provide social distancing and masks and things like that, and keep the case count starting to tip back down, you'll see the economy open up. Now, here's the good news. In the first three weeks of January at Bank of America, the spending that we have, that we have, it's $3 trillion a year in 2020. In 2021, through the first three weeks, it has grown at 9% over last year. And that grew at 9% of the year before. So the interesting thing here is, and you could put a, maybe a percent extra growth on that for the, some of the stimulus that got uh, dispersed in the first part of this month. But let's, take a, let's call it 7 or 8%. That growth rate is as strong as it's been in a, it, it, so far this year, it, last year into this year. And people are spending money. People are engaging the economy differently, again, than they could if we were completely open and people go to theaters and, and things like that. But they're spending money, and that's good news. And even in states like California, which had a major shutdown and is now changing, is up 3% year over year in debit credit card spending. Other states are up 7 8%. And that's, that's all good news. So the economy keeps moving forward, and we feel very constructive about the consumer activity. What about savings, the savings rate? I, knew that, I know that grew pretty substantially. What does it look like very recently? Well, it's, it continues to grow. And so if you look at the disbursement of the latest round of EIP, the $600 payments that went to people, uh, Americans with incomes under $75,000, we've received about 11 million payments so far from the government into our customers' accounts. And only about 28% of that has been spent. And so... If you go back, 10 million of those came in the first week of January. So it's been a few weeks. It's only about 28% being spent. That percentage is lower than the EIP payments of last year. And so it means that customers who are working, et cetera, have the cash, and the cash is being sort of saved. Interestingly enough, the money that was spent is being spent on discretionary retail, which means it's being spent on more things, not just you know, the necessities of life, but more discretionary, which is good news for just general economic activity. Now, let's not forget, we have an unemployment rate of 6% plus. We have a group of people who need the support of the government, need continued unemployment benefits, need these type of help to continue to make it to the other side of the river. Meanwhile, the good news is you know, 94% of the economy and, and the people are working, which is good news going the other way. So that, that the difference between this time and maybe March and April last year is we didn't know there was any light at the end of the tunnel. Now you're starting to see it. You've seen the economies come back. Now we've got work to do. And that's what we got to do. But the good news is the savings rate will bow well as we move through the year if people get out and spend. I, I think there's a fair amount of pent-up pent activity in people's accounts. Brian, that may be the most effective argument I've heard yet about the need for a targeted stimulus, not necessarily checks to just about everybody. What, what would you tell Congress if they were to ask you what you thought um, a stimulus package should really look like? Uh, in, with the last stimulus and this stimulus, I think we have to continue to focus on just using the analogy of people crossing a bridge of the river. A lot of people are across. We need to help the people who haven't gotten across yet. So 
So restaurants and movie theaters and, and travel and entertainment, they, they are just not open yet. Until they are, you have millions of people who can't work in those industries that we need to get to work. So we need to do that. On top of that, I think we need to help the state and locals at municipalities. Last time we talked, I, I used the reference of Hamilton, which took these debts that were incurred in the war, the Revolutionary War, and brought them to the, to the United States level. Frankly, that's what we, need, that's what we have to do again. People, states can't afford to plug the hole in their budgets due to the, the uh, COVID-19 crisis. We need to help them with that and, and basically and, and plug that hole for them so they can go on and do what they need to do as states. So I think whether it's schools, whether it's universities, whether it's nonprofits, whether it's performance venues and those things, I think target stimulus to continue to help those enterprises be in great shape when we come out of this thing as we move through the summer into the fall is critically important. How big that is, I'll leave the political side, but that's where the focus ought to be, is how do we help the people who haven't crossed the river yet get across the river? But not necessarily checks to Americans who still have their jobs, maybe haven't suffered any drop in their income. I, I think the more targeted it is, the, the more effective it is, and, and we can help people. It's not that... It's not that the $600 doesn't help people, but we need to keep targeting it, I think, to make sure it's affordable and make sure it also has the most immediate impact. Brian, have you thought about inflation in terms of what you anticipate? We have seen higher prices for grains, for, for raw materials, like in building and other places. Have you seen it show up in other places, and, and what's your outlook for it? Well, you know, this is a great debate going on in the markets, and you saw you know, rates lift up a little bit and then come back down. And, and so I think... Right now, it's premature to talk about that because at the end of the day, we need to get us we need to get this economy, which is about 90 some percent back to the way it is, all the way back and growing again. Because if the U.S. economy doesn't grow, the rest of the world's in trouble because the size and dimensions and scale and scope and, and global impact of that economy. So I'm not sure the inflation right now is there's parts that you can see there and prices and stuff like that. But I'm not sure it's the biggest worry. As we move through the year, I think we have to be more careful. And as we move into next year, we have to be more careful that we don't end up with such an amount of cash and stimulus in, in the economy that it, over, that it has some of that impact. But right now, it's not the issue of the moment. Brian, I want to thank you for your time this morning. And also, thank you for the work that you're doing when it comes to trying helping out in some of these communities. We appreciate it. Well, Becky, thank you. And, you know, I, I encourage all your listeners to go look at the IBC and the World Economic Forum metrics, this is 62 companies are making big commitments to help society make progress. So I think it, I'd encourage people to go look at it, and I encourage more companies to sign on. Thank you. Brian, we'll talk to you again soon. And that's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. I'm calling you Boomer. I like calling you Boomer. <laughs> I should be calling. Look, they're on Twitter, they're calling me Boomer all over now. We're all Boomers. Tweet us anytime at Squawk CNBC and let us know what you think of Squawk Pod. I hope you're also subscribed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Tell a friend to listen to. Sharing is caring. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.